My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you all for tuning in to the 13th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And today I'm excited to bring on my fourth official guest, Caroline Kitchener, who is coming off of a very exciting week. She recently published her book, Postgrad, Five Women in Their First Year Out of College. But beyond being what will soon be a best-selling author, uh, I've got to know Caroline at Princeton my junior year. And I think it's so funny because... In college, especially at Princeton with our residential college systems, you sort of meet people freshman and sophomore year and you stay with them till the very end. You know, those, that's your pod of friends throughout college. And so it was so rare and amazing to meet a close friend junior year and to have it be Caroline Kitchener, who's been such a phenomenal person, uh, a beautiful spirit and someone who's just so positive. And so I'm so excited to have her on as the fourth official guest on the Riley Rant, uh, where we're going to discuss her book. But also some of the topics that we talk about uh, on a weekly basis from how do we navigate the professional and the personal landscapes. And her book touches on this so perfectly that I knew I had to get her on the show. So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to Carolyn. How are you? Oh, Paul, that was so nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm really, really excited to be here. I was I was really hoping that Paul was going to ask me to be on his podcast. So, yeah, and I tried um, to probe you when I first launched. I was like, you know, I know this book is coming out in April. I need you on there. I said it in passing, but I was so serious. Great. I'm super happy to be here. Yeah, so I, I wanted to spend this uh, episode going over three segments. So I know that the book is about post-grad, that first year out of college, but I wanted to sort of provide some context, learn more about how you ended up at Princeton, sort of your time at Princeton, then go into post-grad, writing the book. And then since the you know you finished writing, or not necessarily writing, but reporting on the stories about two years ago, want to do a little catch-up on what's been happening over the last two years and what the future looks like. When I read articles about the book, I often laugh at how people describe the coveted Princeton degree or a look inside you know the Princeton students. And I think that's so funny because to many people from the outside looking in, it could be a rare, stereotypical description of Princeton students. And so would love to provide more color and humanize you know you as an individual to, to figure out how you ended up at Princeton yeah um, well I think it's so funny that um, you, you know so or, originally the book was called postgrad five women in their first year out of the Ivy League but it, it, it didn't occur to me that with that title other people who didn't go to Ivy League schools wouldn't think that it was relevant to them but that definitely was the case I slowly realized that my friends who who didn't go to Ivy Leagues you know, they, they wanted to read the book because I'd written it, but they didn't, they just assumed it wouldn't connect with them in any way. Yeah. So I think we have, we have these ideas about who Princeton students are. And it's just, they're just like, I, I mean, obviously we have so much privilege, but you know, it, it's, um, they're, they're more, they're not some crazy different species. You know? <laughs> yeah. Species. Princeton was the first college that I visited, and I think after that, I just had it in the back of my mind as, you know, this is this is the place. This is the place of 
you know, the, the highest reach. And, and I, I was a really, really hard worker in, in, in high school. And I had, you know, I put a Princeton poster <laughs> up on my wall. It's kind of embarrassing, but you know, that really, it, it, it really motivated me. And, and, you know, I, I don't think, um, it was anything actually in particular about the school. I just, you know, because it was the first school I visited, it was just in my head. And prior to going to Princeton, you were very involved in, in public speaking. Were those sort of the activities you did prior to college? Was it public speaking? Was it a little bit of writing as well? Or did that take off sort of in college? Yeah, I did. I did public speaking. I also was the editor of my student um, newspaper at school. And uh, I went to a Catholic all-girls school. Well, I was constantly trying to push the boundaries there with writing. Because mm-hmm. uh, my... You know, my, my student newspaper was sort of censored by the administration and I was constantly trying to get them to, you know, put more and more controversial things in the paper. And that was how I got really interested in writing because I thought it was so cool that I could get people thinking about other topics that they before might have thought were taboo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that sort of pushing the envelope in that way just gave me, just made me really excited. Yeah. And, 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 and that's how I got into journalism. Definitely. And, and when you talk about writing on pieces that were controversial, I know at Princeton there were um, a few controversial things, notably Susan Patton talking about uh, women in the Ivy League should prioritize finding a husband. Um, and I know that you also did some writing on the wage gap and how that takes off. Could you shine a little more light on, on that and your perspective? I know that was sort of many years ago, but what was that like for you? And, and did that sort of build up this desire to continue to, to touch the controversial or, or to insert your voice into some of the topics of the day? Well, I think so. Actually, my first my first experience with a really con- really controversial piece at Princeton was my third week of freshman year when I published this. I published this um, opinion piece about how I felt like senior guys were going after freshman women, mm-hmm. and that was my first experience that I then experienced, you know, a few times after. But that was my first experience with wow, you can put something into the world and people can come after you. Yeah. And it, it was it was a really hard experience to have, but it was it was it was a good one to have. And that's definitely I mean, that's definitely what happened with Susan Patton. She said something really I mean, I, I in her case, I really disagree. And yeah. I was one who was extremely upset about what she was saying um, because she was insinuating that women at Princeton, rather than prioritizing and focusing on their careers, they should be focusing on finding a guy while they were in school. And I found that really offensive. So, so yeah, I mean, she was attacked, but then she also had a lot of people who were saying, you know, we actually think that you're making a good point. So interesting to see both sides of that and and where people fall on that issue as you're putting yourself out there, taking the stance, but seeing that many people have internalized perceptions of how things should be and even fighting through that can be challenging at -hmm. times. So you, you, you've done the, the writing and the controversial pieces. One thing that we talk about on the Riley Rant with respect to the professional landscape is having these big dreams for your life and, and trying to accomplish them, but maybe breaking them down into smaller steps. And so when you think about writing or, or that desired career path, is this something you knew that you wanted to do? I know you, you said growing up you had the Princeton poster in your room, but did you ever have this idealized conception of writing also high on your yeah. list of career aspirations? 
Yeah, I definitely did. When I was in second grade, I wrote an essay that was read out to the school. And I came home to my mom that day saying, Mom, I absolutely want to be a writer. That is what I want to do. And I think I had that always in my head. As I got to college, that totally went away. And I, because I just didn't think it was realistic. And I um, started planning, you know, to go to law school and to pursue law, um, specifically domestic violence law. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm still interested in that. But when I got the opportunity to write this book, it was like, wow, this actually can happen. Um, this is something that I, you know, if, if you had asked me what I most wanted to do, it would be to write a book. And I just never imagined that it could actually happen. And when you um, talked about in college that it wasn't a possibility, what what led you to believe that? I know you talk about in other interviews the Princeton ladder. Was that factoring yeah. into it, the Google and the finance job? There's not really a ladder for writing because it's so much luck that comes into it. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have, you know, all around me I could see students that I knew who had graduated who were pursuing the law ladder. Like they, they wanted to be, and they were going to be incredible lawyers. Mm -hmm. And I could very clearly see the path that they needed to take to get there. Friends who wanted to be doctors. Again, there was a very clear path. Um, friends who wanted to go into finance, very clear path, but not really a clear path for writing. And I like to plan. Um, I like <laughs> to, I like to know exactly what I'm going to be doing. And you know, the last, the last couple of years have been wonderful, but also a little terrifying, especially right now, because I, I don't really, there is no clear ladder for writing. It's, um, you know, there, there's, there's no track that you can easily get on. And um, it's much more unsure. And I think it's much, much more uncertain. And I think for, you know, coming out of Princeton, that's just not something that we're trained to deal with very well. Yeah. <laughs> the risk taking. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you talk about writing, I think the, the danger is that people will look and say, look at Carolyn Kitchener. She's an author now. She wrote her first book. It, it was so easy. But, I mean, wasn't it true that you were also sort of contributing and freelancing even in college? I know you may have written for The Atlantic. Would you describe it as piecemeal, you know, getting pieces out here and there and gaining traction? Or how did you get to writing the book and becoming an author? Because I think that's often lost in the storytelling and I joke about even executives where it's like, oh, I met such and such and five years later I got promoted and now I'm here. And, and we don't really get the story of the, the details. So maybe you could touch on that for us. I, I got very lucky. Um, I had an internship at the Atlantic my uh, the, the summer after my junior year. And I wrote a piece. Well, I, I started writing a couple of pieces about college women and uh, after one particular piece that I wrote, I had an editor um, at Penguin reach out to me and ask if we could talk on the phone. And I, um, you know, my boyfriend will tell you, I thought that this was a joke. Like I, I mentioned it to him offhandedly saying like, hey, like I, somebody, I didn't actually believe that it was an editor who was considering you know, asking me to write a book. I didn't, I, I just thought that it was like spam. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and my boyfriend convinced me, no, Caroline, you need to respond to this person like now. <laughs> uh, and so I did. And we started talking and, and she uh, she made the point that so much of, you know, almost everything that had been written about college women was not written by people our age. It was written by older people sort of looking in, studying our population. And yeah. uh, she thought that there was really room for a 
a young woman to write about her peers. And I said, that sounds awesome. I would absolutely love to do that. So um, yeah, so then we, we, we worked together on developing an idea for a book um, over the next couple of months. And that provides a nice segue because I now want to dive a little bit into the book and not give away any spoilers or, or give away anything because I want people to buy the book and we'll definitely place the link and everything under this episode. Uh, but in postgrad, five women in their first year out of college, you follow sort of four women and, and include yourself as the fifth woman. Denise, who um, is preparing for medical school. Alex, who's going through you know questions about her sexuality and, and, and navigating that with her parents. Michelle, who's getting her master's in jazz vocals, uh, getting support from her family. And then Olivia, very wealthy, you know, living in Brooklyn and, and writing a documentary. How did you come up with the concept of the book? So I know the editor may have introduced the idea of, okay, we want a young woman to share the perspectives of other women, but how much autonomy and ownership did you have over creating the narratives and, and selecting the individuals? What was that process like? So originally, I had talked with the editor about writing a book about the senior year at Princeton. And then pretty quickly through talking with other people too, it became clear that that was not the most interesting story. The more interesting story was what happened to these, to these people after they graduate. And so with that in mind, over the course of my senior year, I started interviewing, probably interviewed about 20 to 25 women, at least a couple of times, just to get a sense of, you know, different people and different stories. So so over the course of that year, I, I started to narrow it down and, 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 and until I got to four that I thought were, you know, I was looking for a really diverse group, um, so economic diversity, racial diversity, you know, I, I wanted because Princeton is, is really international, too. I, I wanted at least, you know, one or two came from countries outside the US. Mm-hmm. And, and also diversity of career, cho- you know, career choice. Over that year, I, um, you know, I, I just kept, I kept meeting with people. And, uh, and, and it, that was really up to me, the, the, the women that I, you know, decided it, their stories really need to be told in this book. Definitely. And how did you navigate the tension between what to share and what not to share? Because I, I could imagine when you're writing a story about others, was there some tension in, what to share and not to share. And then also when you decide to introduce your story into the equation, how did you navigate, you know, being the gatekeeper of your own story and being comfortable and vulnerable, pushing out more than you may have been comfortable sharing in the same way that you may have done for the woman that you were following? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the book was very much a collaborative process with the women that I interviewed. Whenever we had, you know, our interviews were less, sometimes they were for, they were formal and I had a list of questions, but most of the time it was a conversation and they were learning just as much about me as I was learning about them. My message to them was be as honest as you can be, mm-hmm. try not to hold anything back. And then at the end, I'll show you what I have. And if there are things that you are not comfortable with, we can take those things out. And I think that that led to better, more honest stories. We were comfortable enough with each other that I was going to value what they wanted at the end. And I did. You also asked about me and um, how I decided to, you know, what to put in. That was really hard because, you know, all the, the other women in the book are all anonymous. Um, yeah, yeah. Real names aren't there, but obviously mine has to be. That was really tricky. And I think that the, the most tricky part is that it's not just me that's being affected. You know, when I say my boyfriend or I say my mom, even if I, you know, don't use their full names, people know who they are. So that was a challenge for sure. 
Definitely. And you said that you did some formal interviews. I saw, this is a plug as well, um, I saw on LinkedIn today that they did sort of an interview with you, and it's now live on LinkedIn, so I would encourage people to check that out as well. In it, they also, you shared an excerpt from the book. It's talking about how you're in Brooklyn, and I believe you're with Olivia, and she's navigating Brooklyn. And, and so with your interview process, were you immersing yourself into the environment, sort of staying at their places and things of that sort? How did you round out the formal, buttoned-up interviews with the sort of organic just observations that also help to bring life to the story? As much as So I actually, when I originally did the budget for the, for the year that I'd be traveling and recording, I budgeted hotels. But as the year, you know, as we started doing that, we were so informal and friendly with each other that that just didn't really make sense. And so I did end up, you know, almost I think every trip I did, I stayed with the person that I was interviewing. And I think that made, you know, I, I really, really appreciated that they were willing to open up their lives to me in that way. Because I think it, it, you know, that that made it just more honest and more organic. And the best conversations that we had across the board were not the ones where I sat, sat them down and said, I want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. The best conversations were the ones that just happened on the subway or, you know, on the way to a party <laughs> or, yeah. you know, that, that it's just, you know, you know they're, your guard is is down and and that's good it, you know and i think um they all all of the women i think really understood the mission of the book which was to be as honest and vulnerable as possible to show future generations of college grads that this is a really difficult time and and i think that you know, by allowing me to enter into their lives in this organic way, they achieve that in a way we never would have if we just done formal interviews. And prior to a recording, you were talking about uh, briefly the incorporation of men into the story. And I think that stories like these are so important because they center women's perspectives, you know, in a world where we often see the prioritization of the male perspective. And even when you think about intersectionality and how many voices can get lost in the conversation. So love that you centered women and diverse women. You're talking about international students or postgrads, diverse backgrounds. Did you ever consider bringing men into the equation, or or how did you go about selecting only women? Yeah, I have always cared a lot, written a lot about feminism and women's issues. I was a gender and sexuality studies certificate in college, so it just made sense that that would be my focus because mm-hmm. that was where my background is, but. You know, honestly, if I could do this book again, I would have also included men because I think that this year is so difficult for both men and women. You know, we're 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 all struggling with the fact that we have had this wonderful community our entire lives being in school, you know, surrounded by people our own age and by teachers and people who are there to guide us every step of the way. And suddenly that all goes away. That goes away for both genders. Yeah. Uh, so, so while there are, you know, there, there definitely, you know, I think that there would be some differences, you know, if I was to do more of a um, survey study on the differences between men and women in the first year after college, I'm sure there would be, but overwhelmingly, I think the struggles would be similar. Yeah. And I think that that's so true. You know, I think that the themes you touch on, which we'll, we'll go over a little bit in a moment, but I think the themes you touch on are, are, transferable to uh, men and women. And of course, they're experienced and internalized and perceived in different ways. But 
I think anyone can relate to this story. So if there are men out there who are listening, don't feel that this is a barrier. I know like you were talking about potentially naming it Ivy League students as a potential barrier. I would hate for this to also be a barrier. So if you are listening, know that these stories are transferable and that you can gain value from the stories. And you may even see some of your own experiences um, in some way, shape, or form in the five women, uh, Carolyn included, who have dealt with these things. But when we talk about themes, one thing that came up in the book was this idea of seeking help and and being comfortable with that. And I'm reminded of even at school, how we talk about effortless perfection. How do I make it look like I did did my best work with as little effort as possible. And so was that a struggle uh, for you and the, and, the, and the few women who sought to seek out help and, and, and to entertain that, especially coming from a world where it maybe wasn't as encouraged or talked about as much because people didn't want to feel like they were inferior or less than or that they had a problem, that they, they weren't as perfect as they thought they were. How, how did you navigate that and, and begin to entertain those things for yourself or the woman in the book? Um, I think that everybody comes out of Princeton feeling like I need to be the best. Like I need to be, you, you, you come out with this set of expectations that we can in large part we put on ourselves because we're surrounded by these unbelievable people. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, it's it's not just that everybody around you is succeeding, they're succeeding in the most visible way possible because every time you log on, that's what you see. And I and I think that for a few women in the book, um, one in particular, it can just feel like you're a constant failure. One of the women in particular, Denise, at Princeton, everybody saw this woman as an incredible leader. And I think if you had told anyone at Princeton that she had these crippling feelings of self-doubt and just lacked lacked confidence after graduation they would have they wouldn't have believed you but i think we we all feel like we really have to measure up to these totally unrealistic standards Um, so you know by any other standards we're we're all doing just fine and when you talk about denise um you were talking about the medical school application process and the imposter syndrome did um, the woman experience this in your book, and did you experience this writing the book, this imposter syndrome? And for those who aren't familiar, imposter syndrome is this belief that you're a fraud, people are going to find out that you're not as capable as they thought you were, and everything's going to fall apart. Did you experience that with the book, or how did that manifest, or was it not present at all? I absolutely experienced that myself. I had just been asked to write this book, and I was so excited about it. But I had no, I actually didn't believe that I could do it. I really honestly didn't believe that I could do it. I had never written anything this long. You know, the the closest thing that I had written was my senior thesis, which was an academic paper. So I just had never done anything remotely like this. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I had gotten stupidly lucky with, you know, my, you know, a professor recommending me for a job at the Atlantic. And then this one article at the Atlantic leading to the book, I just felt like, I am so undeserving and it's soon going to become very clear that I can't do this. <laughs> um, and I think that led to, you know, I, in the book, I, I talk a lot about, you know, my, my first six months after college were really, really hard. Some of the hardest months of my life. And I think a big part of that was feeling like I didn't deserve any of the things that I had and that I just was not going to be able to prove myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a really hard feeling to shape. 
And how did you, I mean, there's no cure. You can't snap your fingers and, and snap out of it. But what were some steps that you took? Because I know men and women alike uh, struggle with this, especially the first couple of years out of college. What, what were some things that, that helped you get through that? Or what, what would be some tips that you would give to others? I would say that I was, I tried to be really honest and vulnerable with my friends and tell them about how I was feeling. People that I really trusted, people that were not going to just say, oh, don't worry, you're awesome, no matter what. But people who would really listen and think about what I was saying and, and, and engage with me on it. And that really helped. I, so I actually, I moved to China about a year after I graduated. And that really helped with imposter syndrome because <laughs> I was removed from this super, super competitive East Coast vibe mm-hmm. in order to write the book. And that was so helpful because without all that noise in the background and like this consciousness of what everybody else was doing and, and this, this fear that I was never going to measure up, you know, it was, it was easier to escape that mm-hmm. when I physically was far away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that helped. And then another theme, uh, final theme I picked up on, and it also came on the excerpt that's on LinkedIn uh, that was shared with the video was dealing with relationships. And I, I, was reminded of how Olivia, when you were at her apartment, she was saying, Robert is too safe for you. That's your boyfriend. And Rob, he's not too shabby of a guy. I kind of, I have the the privilege to know he's not too shabby. Uh, But um, how how did that come about? Um, I know you said that the women in the book were still in those relationships, you know, years down the road. But uh, I was so sort of captivated by this idea of, you know, women making the decision around their career, but also putting those relationships into the equation and how you look at decisions and you said that many of the women were oftentimes placing a lot of weight on that relationship and how that would impact the career decision and things of that sort. How did that materialize? And and, and what would you say to people who are in relationships who are thinking about taking risk? How did you navigate that? Well, I think this was a huge surprise for me and for everybody in the book. Um, the fact that we graduated and we wanted to prioritize relationships. Because coming out of Princeton, that is definitely not the message that you get as a woman, especially. The message is prioritize career, be super successful as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, the, the definition of success is definitely work. It is not personal relationship. You know, that, that, that doesn't really factor into the conception of success that we graduate with. But I actually think that it's, it's so we all gravitated towards relationships, I think, because we had just lost our community. It makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of out of the world and we're floating and um, we've lost so much of the stability and the, the people who gave us all the support and comfort. So it makes sense that we would want to gravitate towards one particular person who could give us some of those things back. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I I really don't. I think that if you can find someone who, you know, is, is that support for you, then that's great coming out of college because that can really help ground you. And beyond even romantic relationships, um, I think for me, the biggest shock moving from the East coast to San Francisco was just, the friendships and, and the friend group. And I loved in the video you talk about on LinkedIn, you talk about how you would meet people and say, hey, do you want to come over for dinner later? You know, intentionally and aggressively friending people. How did you navigate that? And what advice do you have for people who are, say, like me or across the country or in new cities, even on the East Coast, and trying to figure out 
you know, stepping outside of the, the college circle to really make those friends that are going to be um, an, an, a valuable addition to your network and just to your life as you navigate post-grad. Yeah, that was so hard for me going from having, I mean, at Princeton, I had all these groups on all these com- friend communities that were so wonderful. Mock trial was one of them, which is how I <laughs> Paul. Um, and suddenly all that was gone. And my first six months were so lonely. I had my boyfriend, but I really didn't branch out very much. And I got so much happier and so much more settled in the second half of the year when I started to aggressively friend. <laughs> I, I think that there are really there are some really good strategies. I you know acquaintances that I had, I would you know if, if I would I would see them post something about DC, a picture about DC on on Facebook, and I would send them a direct message and say, Hey, are you? Yeah. Cool. Like, want to go out for coffee with me? Or I'd ask my close friends who they knew in DC, and then I'd get together with them. So I, I really made this a priority, and I think that that helped so much in, in me feeling happy in in post college life. Paul, actually, hold on. Uh, <laughs> oh, Robert, Robert's entering the scene. <laughs> I, I just uh, I just was listening uh, from the next room, and I realized thinking about Caroline's first year when she was really uh, lonely. It was actually my second year mm-hmm. out of college. And my first year, I moved into a group house in D.C. Caroline was still in school. And I ended up being this sort of like hermit with no friends <laughs> who would come into the house and go straight down to my basement room and not speak to anybody. But by my second year out, when I moved into my second group house, because we didn't live together right when Caroline graduated, mm-hmm. I was only a mile away from her. But the first day that I moved in, I made the decision to sit down in the common room, yeah. in, the, in the living room, and drink a beer and talk to all of the other people living in the house as much as I could, because mm-hmm. I'd had this experience in the first place yeah, that I, I moved of like not just not not bonding with the group, and yeah. that was what Caroline was going through, and it was miserable. So after that first year, I had learned like okay, like I just got to be annoying about this. Yeah, I got to be like that guy who's just not going to stop talking. <laughs> So they're my friends. And he was yeah. so much happier for doing that. Make sure that you make friends with the people <laughs> that you live with or try to. As soon as you get there. As soon as you get there. I loved in, in Carolyn's post where she's talking about how she's thanking people. And she said, like, you know, Robert was the one who could tell if word had been changed in the page and in the sentence. And so how have you been impacted by the book? Not only as someone who's been, you know, watching the progression, but internalizing the stories and, and incorporating into your life. I, I can say that it is something that I wish I had read uh, or I, I wish I'd thought about just generally the themes before uh, graduating from college because I think that I am like the perfect definition of the kind of person who struggles in the way that Caroline uh, describes her subject struggling. Mm-hmm. I literally, right, and you'll, you'll remember this because this is when I met you, I graduated, I moved to DC, I made essentially no friends. I had one friend from DC who I would see periodically who was also working in the city. I realized that I didn't have any friends uh, in my group house. It was already too late. And I ended up at the uh, end of, I guess that year, uh, in December, uh, convincing uh, Princeton Mark Trial to hire me and bring me back to coach. So I literally... Not only did I gravitate toward a relationship, which was Caroline, who was still at school and still on the team, I also literally gravitated yes, toward the same school. <laughs> yeah. 
people. I lived, I moved back and I went, you know, to, to clubs with everybody from school with the same friends more or less that I'd had before. So I, you know, I, I thought coming out that, you know, looking back, I would say, I would say there's something, there was something wrong with me, um, yeah. that I was just not capable of sort of integrating into like normal life with normal adult non-college people. Uh, mm -hmm. But what I understood uh, when I moved into my second group house the next year and what I understand very clearly now is that I was caught by surprise yeah. by need to like do this myself. Yeah. I mean, when I moved in at uh, college as a freshman, I had three roommates. Uh, we didn't get along particularly well at first. We ended up being roommates for four years mm -hmm. um, among my closest friends. But that happened because we were forced into these <laughs> very close quarters. And we were in this environment that was really encouraging us to socialize together and do things together and make friends together. Yeah. And without that, when I moved into my group house and you know the other people who were there were older than me, so they already had their own networks of friends. Um, they were not in the same situation that I was in. They were perfectly accustomed to normal life. I, I didn't get swept up with them. It was something that I had to do on my own. And I just didn't realize. I didn't realize because school really doesn't prepare you for that. And I really think that's the value of post-grad is that really you learn. You learn how to, uh, how to function when you get out of school. And when you talk about this integrating into normal society, I'm just curious to hear, because I talk to friends about this as well, where are the expectations coming from? Like, are they self-imposed? Are they sort of Princeton? Is it the, the world telling you that by this age you need to be doing this? Where do you think that those key directions and drivers and milestones are, are coming from? You mean socially, Paul? or Socially and, and professionally. Like, w w where does this come from? I know it exists, but I've always been curious as to, like, is it just something that we're indoctrinated into believing that we carry with us? Or is it us looking at Facebook? Or is it a combination of all of that? Socially, for me, I was just lonely. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the pressure just came from the fact that I was sitting at home watching Netflix for hours, which I had never really done before, and being sad that I didn't have my group around me anymore. Yeah. And that was the push, you know, after a few months of that, that was the push that I needed. No, I mean, I would say that that was definitely, that was definitely the case for me as well. As far as professional pressure is concerned, uh, though, I would say that that is one of the things that is tough when you go, not necessarily to an Ivy League school, but to a, a good school, a school with a name brand, if you will, um, like a nationally recognized university, is like when you tell people that you're going there, people like automatically think like, ah, like this is a, this is a smart, impressive young person. And when you leave school, suddenly, like, you don't have that easy way to say, like, look at me, I'm special. Yeah. Uh, the playing field is, is leveled and the name brand, like, doesn't count as much and it's not really relevant. It's kind of annoying if you bring it up. So I don't think there's a real pressure externally, but I feel like you feel pressure because you are used to people just being like, oh, wow, like, you're so smart. Um, or you're so cool, and then you don't really have that anymore. Would you agree with that, Caroline? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Definitely. And I just wanted to get maybe both of your perspectives on the difficult aspect of writing uh, the book, 
the biggest learning lessons and sort of what you would say to someone who's about to graduate? So Robert said he wished he had this book two years ago, but what were some of the biggest challenges, biggest lessons, and then what would you leave individuals with who are reading this book and preparing to graduate or who are already six months, a year, two, three years out and trying to get back on a path that, that's on their own terms? So, okay, so one of, definitely one of my pieces of advice is to, is to, is to take time creating your own community. Don't, don't, don't think that's not important because it is. It's just as important as your career because if you're not happy in your at least for me. If I wasn't happy in my social life, like my writing, my job was not, it wasn't going well. Yeah. <laughs> and um, somebody said this to me a couple days ago, and, 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 I, and, and, I, and I love this piece of advice is, you know, we're always, we are programmed to compare ourselves. That's just, that's just something that we have to do in our mind. But rather than comparing to other people around you, compare to how you've been in the past yeah. um, and compare yourself and judge yourself against yourself yeah. uh, rather than judging yourself against uh, people who are around you, which is something that's, that's, I think, especially tempting to do coming from college. People are just doing, like I said, just nuts things. And, and you're, you know, if you, if you judge yourself against them, you're just constantly going to feel like a failure. So, so don't do that as much as possible. And then um, as promised in the intro, I said, we're going to talk about College, postgrad, and then present day. And so I know that you had finished reporting on the on the, the subjects or observing the woman about two years ago. And so over the last two years, you've been writing and, and getting ready for this amazing rollout, you know, in the month of April. So what have you been up to in that time where you, you said you were writing the book abroad in China or portions yeah. of it? Uh, yeah. And you came back. What, what are you up to now? Are you still in D.C.? And, and what are you going to be doing in the coming days and months? This is a great question, Paul, that I am asking myself every day. (laughs) (laughs) I have been, so yeah, so I went to, I went to China for a year and that was where I did the bulk of the writing, came back, finished up the editing and have been, you know, for the, you know, for the past year, I'm doing a couple of different things, doing, doing more freelancing than I've ever done before. And also, you know, preparing to write pieces that are relevant to the book that, you know, have come out or, or will be coming out in the next couple weeks. That it was it was my first taste of freelancing. Don't really love that because it's super unstable. Yeah. Isn't it like <laughs> a, a, a price per word or? It is, uh, or is it, it, it depends. Word? It depends place by place. But you know, even more than the you know financial financial instability, it's also just you know you're so beholden constantly to what other people think of your work. Like you're just constantly making yourself so vulnerable because you have to send out all these emails every week saying, Hey, this is my idea. And 75% of the time the answer is no thanks. And you have to be, I mean, I have so much respect for freelancers because you have to be so resilient. You have to be okay with rejection and just wipe it, you know, just, just wipe it away. And I, I, I internalize it. So I don't think that that's really for me in the future. I think it's something that I could do on the side, like if I have a, you know, a really great idea. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've been looking at, you know, do I, do I want to work on a publication? Do I want to uh, work on another book? A lot will, a lot will depend on, on what happens in the next couple of weeks. Really a proud of you, really excited uh, about this accomplishment is no small feat. And you're entering into a, a very small community that, that many people can't accomplish this. And so, Hope that you realize just how significant this is and, and how many people you're going to impact uh, with your story and the story of these other four women who are navigating 
post-grad life. Thank you so much for tuning in to the 13th official episode of The Riley Rant. Thank you, Carolyn and Robert, for his brief cameo on this episode. As I mentioned before, Carolyn is the author of the book Postgrad, Five Women in Their First Year Out of College. I hope you all will get that. Um, and are you going to be, I know that you were traveling to bookstores and things of that sort. Um, has that been, are you going to do that more or do we miss uh, that leg of it? Yeah, I've got, no, I've got seven appearances in the next two months. Um, and all those are on my website, carolinekitchener.com. Perfect. Well, we'll look forward to it. And this book has been getting so much buzz. Uh, Melissa Harris Perry is someone I love and admire and respect. I know she taught you, but she's talking about how she's going to ensure that all of her advisees reads this book. This is uh, gaining traction. I'm excited to see where it goes. And as I mentioned before, I'm excited to see how many people are impacted by this. So thank you all for tuning in. And remember that if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley rant.